Welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Tom Slater, Deputy Editor at Spiked, and today I talk to Thomas Frank about Trump, Hillary, and how the Democrats lost the hearts of America. There was mock celebration on Twitter last week when Donald Trump's account was temporarily suspended, apparently the work of a despondent Twitter staffer. But one year on from his inauguration, Trump and the popular discontent his election represented aren't going anywhere. Even as Trump seems to prove himself incapable of achieving anything other than outrage, the Republican and Democratic establishments remain in disarray. Even electoral wins for the Democrats this week obscure the fact that their support among the working classes continues to ebb. So why did Trump win? What's happened to the Democrats? And is anyone truly capable of cultivating the populist, anti-establishment sentiment the election unleashed? To explore these questions, I spoke to Thomas Frank, journalist, historian, and the author of Listen Liberal and What's the Matter with Kansas. So Thomas, if we could just cast our minds back to November 8th last year, Hillary Clinton's going into this election. It's supposed to be unlosable. She's up against this vulgarian, this political novice. Um, All of the polls say it's locked in. Why does she lose? You can think about it in either in terms of the immediate reasons, you know, the screw-ups that she and the Democrats made, or you can think about it in terms of the larger sort of direction of American politics that it's been going in for 30 or 40 years. And I think the the, the latter is a more important thing, you know, the, the, the direction everything is going in. But before we do that, go back to Trump. Hillary outraised and outspent Donald Trump two to one. She raised more money than the billionaire. And spent more money than the billionaire and had TV commercials blanketing the country. In the week before the election, I was down in Florida in the, the swing state of all swing states. And when you turn on the TV, it was just constantly Hillary commercials. There were no Trump commercials on TV, and he won that state. It was incredible. Hillary Clinton's team, who are the ablest professionals in the business, they are the best guys in Washington for running a campaign. Hillary has Eric Schmidt from Google at her side. She has big data. She has micro-targeting. She has more money. She has the best advisors. She loses. She loses to a complete novice. Not only a complete novice— Donald Trump had spent the election going down the list of American demographic groups and insulting them in each one in turn. He insulted the families of people who died in the Iraq war, for God's sakes, the families of veterans. He went, he picked a fight with a beauty queen, for God's sakes. It was incredible watching this guy. How could he even have had a chance, much less get elected? Why'd that happen? Well, The Republican Party has sort of captured the magic elixir of American politics, which is populism. You know, they discovered this in the 1960s during the Vietnam era. Richard Nixon, you know, Reagan did it. George W. Bush did it. And Trump has done it better than any of the others. Trump is very, very good at this explicitly made an appeal to Rust Belt voters, to people in these sort of deindustrialized zones of America, talking about why they had been, uh, why their lives have been ruined, you know, why the American dream isn't available to them anymore. And these are traditional Democratic voters. This is not just not just traditional Democratic voters. This is the heart and soul of the Democratic Party, you know, working class people. Hillary offered them very, very little. 
and on that point, because one of the um, the arguments you make in Listen Liberal, the kind of core one really is the fact that the Democratic Party is still a class party. It's just yeah. the class that is its base has yeah. changed. Could you say a little bit more about that and what that means? <laughs> yes, and that's part of the, the long-term shift. So the Republicans, what I just described, Republic is, is the way the Republican Party, the traditional party of business, has reached out to working class voters. At the same time as they've been doing this, the Democratic Party have decided that they don't want to be the party of working class people anymore. They want those people to vote for them, of course. They want, you know, they want to win elections. But who they really are is a party of the affluent white collar professional class. You know, we're here in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. And if you just look around you at the houses around here and the people who live in them, you know, all these people with advanced degrees, all of these lawyers and lobbyists and uh, doctors and people like that. These are Democrats. This is who the Democratic Party really identifies with nowadays. By the way, I'm not making this up or reading between the lines. They, they write about this. They talk about this all the time. If you look at the leadership of the Democratic Party, it's always people from this particular social cohort. You look at someone like Hillary Clinton uh, or Bill Clinton or Barack Obama, and these are people who's whose lives were defined by their experiences at fancy colleges and fancy graduate schools. And that really is who they are. And so, you know, when Barack Obama says, speaking of Hillary Clinton, that she's the most qualified candidate of all time, he's setting her up as the resume candidate. And that's really what how Hillary thinks of herself. By the way, she was the resume candidate. So I have uh, behind you, I have her new memoir that came out a few weeks ago. And, uh, it starts with um, the question – well, actually, it starts with Hillary talking about uh, how she dealt with her loss. Like she did yoga. She, you know, she talks this to her. sort of reverse nostril yoga or whatever. Yeah, right, yeah, right. Yeah, she did all these things, you know. But then the, when, when she finally gets into the, you know, the sort of meat of the story, she starts out the chapter by saying, why did I run for president? You know? And she says, because I thought I'd be good at it. So having decided that she wants to run for president, she then says, so then I called up a bunch of experts and asked them what my issues should be. Now, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, of course. I'm not quote, I don't have the book in front of me, but this is what she says. So it's so funny that that's, you know, she has it completely backwards. Her ability comes first and the issues are secondary. One of the things you, you have written about many, many times is inequality and the way in which that that has been widening and widening and particularly the Democratic Party have done nothing about that. Yeah. And what was really interesting was during the campaign, I think one of Clinton's slogans in response to Trump was Mer- America is already great. Yeah. yeah. Isn't <laughs> what that wonderful? Think- <laughs> it's like, they kept saying this at the Democratic that. convention and it's like it's just utter complacency. And here's Trump. If you go back and look at Trump's TV commercials, here's Trump explicitly talking about the working class, and he uses those terms, the working class, that phrase. She was basically, in my opinion, she's blocked from, like mentally, psychologically blocked from understanding what is wrong and what she has to do as a presidential candidate, because that would mean acknowledging that her husband actually did some things that were really awful for working people. Uh, And it would also mean that Barack Obama, who she was running as his hand-picked successor, that Barack Obama had done things that were not all that great for working-class people. And she couldn't do that. She could not see her way through to understanding that. She regards her husband, she says in the book, she regards her husband as one of the greatest presidents we've ever had. He, you know, he solved the Democratic Party's problems uh, by moving to the center, you know, doing all that stuff in the 90s that he was celebrated for doing. You know, what she doesn't acknowledge is NAFTA. 
bank deregulation. These things really hurt people. She looks at Barack Obama, you know, this great, great president. The man didn't prosecute the Wall Street bankers for, for what they did. He did, you know, inequality soared during his time in office. On that point, and particularly about the Obama administration, because one of the general interpretations of his time in the White House is the idea that he had the best of intentions, but he was kind of inhibited from doing anything yeah. about financialization, about I don't, I don't various think that's right, things. though. I don't think that's right. Mm. I think especially at the beginning of his eight years, Obama had, had the wind at his back and could have done whatever he wanted. And he chose not to do a lot of the things that people thought they were voting for him, you know, for. So the classic example is getting tough with the Wall Street banks, who has, you might recall, had just finished throwing the global economy off a cliff. <laughs> I mean, a lot of countries still haven't recovered from that. Look at Greece, look at Spain, you know, they're still... These these are these places are still deeply fucked up because of what happened in this country in the last decade. We knew Wall Street's role in all this. It was obvious that they had committed all kinds of fraud, and Barack Obama chose not to get tough with them. So then the question becomes: Why did he make that choice? Now he's never said, and ultimately, the I think what the answer is, this is my explanation for it is that there is a kind of there's a feeling of class solidarity among these people where. Someone at the Justice Department or at the Treasury Department or um, in the White House, they look at these guys on Wall Street and they know these guys. They went to school with these guys. They went to college with these guys. They went to graduate school with these guys, or if not with these individuals, with people very much like them. They feel the same way with journalists, by the way. They look at journalists and it's like, those people are us. They're on our side. They're just like us. They went to these fancy schools. They come from this this uh, this exact same background. And on that point, though, because if that's who they feel that their real constituency is, where does that leave the working class? Because it's not just the case that they're out of touch. There's all, there also seems to be a genuine hostility. Oh, absolutely. Oh, my God. Ever since the election, yes. But before the election, look at their approach to working class people. Look at the kind of things that Barack Obama says to them. He says, if you want to get ahead... In this economy, if you just want to be a member of the middle class, you have to go to college. If you didn't go to college, you know, too bad. Too bad. The ship has sailed. You know, it's like uh, that's globalization. That is modernity. Uh, You know, it's really sad what is happening to you, but uh, there's nothing can be done about it. And they say this. They say it openly. And that's the party of the left in our system. The idea that nothing can be done for them. It's preposterous. The government has enormous power to arrange the economic playing field however they want. Uh, I mean, we this is what a democracy is all about. Bill Clinton used to say things like this. You know, change is, change is an external force that we can't really understand, and it just comes here to America and does things to us. And it makes these people rich, and it makes these people poor. He shipped your jobs to China. I am so sorry about that. Bullshit. These are the trade agreements that that president signed, that that president negotiated deliberately to shift power in that direction. You could write trade agreements that benefit blue-collar workers and that ruin white-collar workers. It would be easy. I could like get together with like five of my homies and write such a trade, trade agreement. When, when they say, you know, there's nothing can be done about this, everyone knows they're lying. And here comes Donald Trump saying, these treaties were bad deals for this country, and I'm going to rewrite them. Did you ever watch any of his rallies? You, mm. you went to one. Yeah. And one of his sort of um, 
uh, set pieces is where he would pretend he would be like, okay, I'm president. He would pretend to pick up a telephone. <laughs> I'm going to call the CEO of that company. I'm going to threaten him with tariffs just for him if he doesn't move those jobs back to America. That's bullshit too. But people hear that and they're like, that touches a nerve. And they know that, the, the, they know that there's some, some truth there to what he's saying. I can't stand Donald Trump, but, you know, he 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 nailed that. Mm. And what's really interesting and something that you pick up on is the left's discomfort with populism, despite the fact... Oh, they hate it. it they hate it, the, the very word. It was actually originally, or most commonly throughout history, as a kind of cudgel used against the left. They said that this is yeah. populist rubbish, etc. What does that tell us about the Democratic Party, that they're so terrified of... They've forgotten who they are. They've forgotten their own history. I mean, that's that's who the Democratic Party was. Uh, you know, you look at Franklin Roosevelt or Harry Truman or you look at Lyndon Johnson. That, that's where their power came from. Or William Jennings Bryan, you know, going all the way back, Andrew Jackson. That's who the Democratic Party, in their successful periods, that's who they were. Americans have real trouble with social class. You've probably uh, figured this out as you've toured this country. Americans have a lot of trouble talking about class. There's all sorts of stumbling blocks when you bring it up. Um, it's, you know, we're, we think of ourselves as a classless society because we don't have an aristocracy. You know, we don't have any inherited titles in this country. So people have trouble with the concept and they think there's something inherently questionable about it. Populism is our way of talking about class. It's our way of, of denouncing uh, aristocrats, hierarchies, any sort of uh, privilege or presumption. That's populism when you denounce those things, when you set yourself up in opposition to those things. The problem is that the, when the Democrats you know, over the years have become more and more identified with the professional class, the professional class is a kind of elite. And so the Democrats have put themselves in a place where they are on the receiving end of populism. My own feeling is that the sort of Trumpist populism or Reagan populism is is a phony. It's a fraud because it ignores, you know, the hierarchy of wealth, business, all that stuff. You know, it just focuses on these other things, attitudes, tastes, stuff like that. But populism is the uh, the Trump card. Oh, Jesus, there I go. Populism is the Trump card in our system. And the Democrats, no, they've completely turned against it. There was a group this is before your time. There's a group called the Democratic Leadership Council. This is where Bill Clinton comes from and Hillary. They come out of this group. And uh, it was a centrist group. The idea was that they agreed with the Republicans on economic issues. They wanted the Democrats to turn away from the New Deal and the Great Society, to turn away from their, their past and embrace what you would call neoliberalism. And the Democratic Leadership Council got their way. Uh, Bill Clinton was elected president. He was he's widely regarded as being very successful, and they've never the Democratic Party has never looked back. Well, part of what the DLC, part of their approach was to constantly denounce populism. Populism is what Democrats can never do. Populism is the kiss of death, they would say. And by and large, um, Democrats heeded that message. Someone like Hillary Clinton definitely uh, heeded that message. And what's interesting is the backlash against um, experts, the backlash against the elite. I mean, it's kind of allowed a lot of people in the political class, in the elite, to basically present these things as kind of ignorant and strange. But that's what they think this is. It's, mm. we're, we're in this gigantic battle between the ignorant and the educated. Um, and, but why, it's, it's important <laughs> to make the point. Why is it important to stress that rule by experts is not necessarily the right way to go? You know, well, it might, be, it, might, it might be the right way in, in a lot of, you know, obviously uh, uh, people who know something about the subject are better than people who don't know anything about the subject. And you want somebody that knows what they're doing when you get on the airplane. You know, you, you want the guy who knows how to fly the plane to be in the driver's seat. 
the problem is what Democrats, and this is what Democrats consistently misunderstand, is that experts are also a class, that experts are a class unto themselves, and they act in solidarity with one another. There's many classic examples, but economics is, you know, the professional discipline of economics, which is a deeply fucked up discipline. And why is it fucked up like that? And they, and, and they, you know, they've embraced sort of made orthodox, all of these ideas that are patently wrong. And they make predictions that are always wrong. And they, uh, they say things can never happen that then do happen. <laughs> you know, they're, they're consistently wrong in all sorts of ways. And yet they control that they've conquered, or I should say captured, this profession. And they define what economic orthodoxy is. And so when someone like Barack Obama goes out and says, well, I'm going to get the best economists I can on my team, the best professional economists, I can tell you immediately he's going to be very poorly advised. <laughs> Because <laughs> he's going to go get guys like Larry Summers, and he's going to go get other academic economists who are the cream of their profession, but the profession itself is full of shit. Can I give you another really good example? The Vietnam War. This was brought to you by, there's a famous book about this called The Best and the Brightest. The Vietnam War was brought to you basically by the political scientists of America uh, who came down from Harvard or wherever it was and uh, sat around in the Kennedy administration and the Johnson administration and dreamed up the Vietnam War. And people would come to them from outside their discipline and say, look, this thing is a really bad idea. Look at what's happening. And the, uh, the political scientists were like, you know, you don't have a PhD in political science. I outrank you. You don't really understand. And they would brush it off. And they would just keep going. And this is like one of the, I mean, greatest disasters for this country ever in our history, the Vietnam War. But uh, Democrats can't understand this. They're too deep in this, uh, you know, their identification with the professional class. And so... One question I wanted to ask you about was just what is it at the heart of what was attracting people, particularly former Democratic voters or people in formerly Democratic kind of areas and states, to Trump? Is it fundamentally a kind of economic thing in that he was the only person speaking to that? Or is there a cultural element, which is to say, oh, well, not only of do, course, does he there's... break the consensus on that, but also he just offends every fibre of the being of the professional class that you're talking about? Yeah, there is that. And there's, by the way, a certain kind of schadenfreude among these people at, at watching the liberals get get upset at Trump. If you go on YouTube, I just found this out the other day. This is, it was so weird. If you go on YouTube, there's these people who have put together videos of all the different TV networks at the moment that they figured out that Hillary Clinton was going to lose the election. <laughs> Anyhow, there, there is that. But look, there's a lot of different factors in Trump's election. The economic grievance is one of them. And Democrats right now are doing everything they can to discount that. They don't want to look that in the face. They don't want to acknowledge that that might be true. And so they're trying to play up the, the bigotry angle. You know, that Donald Trump is just, this is a, a gigantic revival of bigotry in America, and that's what's really happening. I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, there is obviously a revival of bigotry. What happened in Charlottesville is quite incredible. These people feel empowered. They're out marching around like we haven't seen in a <laughs> well, since I was like an infant in the 1960s, that's really alarming. But I've never heard of a man running for president by pissing off all of these different ethnic groups. I can't help but think that that hurt Trump more than that helped him and that people voted for him despite that rather than in, 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 because of that. For example, boasting about groping women, okay? 
there's no way in hell that helped this man. There's just no way. The amazing thing is that he bounced back from that and that Hillary Clinton was not able to capitalize on that or mocking the parents of that kid killed in Iraq. That was just loathsome. That turned people's stomachs. And you watch Trump plummet in the polls after he said that and then bounce right back. I don't think that people voted for him because, you know, they wanted to insult the families of people who got killed in Iraq. That's just, nobody is that grotesque. Nobody is that insensitive. Uh, there's, there's a lot of reasons why people voted for Donald Trump. But the reason I emphasize the economic one is because that's the swing group. You know, you've got these counties that went for Obama and that went now go for Trump. That's the group that's interesting. And so on that basis, would Bernie have won? I think so, but that's just my opinion. There's, it's, a, it's a counterfactual, so we'll never know. I mean, there's other things. So the, the reason I say Bernie would have won is because Bernie appeals to that same group, that same swing group. And if everything else is equal and the Democrats keep or even increase their margin among the working class and specifically the white working class, then yeah, they win. However, other things would have come into play. Wall Street, which backed Hillary by and large, you know, gave her all kinds of money. They would not have backed Bernie. <laughs> the Wall Street money would have been with Trump. And so, you know, anything could have <laughs> anything could have happened. So just finally, is there any prospect in the near future that the Democrats could actually bridge that gap again, could reconnect with working people? Yes, Do you there see is. any signs Absolutely. of it right now? Well, I mean, it can be done. All I'm saying is it can be done. This is deep in the grain of the Democratic Party. This is who they are. And Donald Trump has you know, already shown in a hundred different ways that he's not really going to serve these voters. He's not really going to do anything for these people. And so that leaves, um, that leaves the door open for the Democrats to reconnect with these people. And the thing is that there's right now there is a, a huge uh, war going on within the Democratic Party over which faction is going to be in charge. Yeah, it could easily go back the other direction. Easily. The fascinating thing is that we're in this just a few short years ago. I mean, the thing that we have to keep remembering in some ways, the, the sort of Trump revolution, what happened in 2016 is I'm very unhappy that Donald Trump is president. But in some ways, it's a great thing because it it blew apart the sort of complacent politics of neoliberalism. The whole idea of you know free trade, for example, which was agreed upon by both parties. Boom. That is in pieces on the floor now. And that's wonderful. So many other things along with it. You know, Donald Trump proves one thing, which is that anything is possible in American politics. And I kind of like that. You've been listening to the Spike Podcast. To get your daily dose of Spike's opinion, head over to spiked-online.com. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast feed. And if you'd like to help Spikes continue to thrive, be sure to make a donation. Thanks for listening.